0: If I'm reading the notation at the bottom correctly, some Presbyterians just, just sang a Gregorian chant. So well done. Well done. Very, very good. Our Old Testament reading this evening is from 2 Samuel chapter 4. As we continue in our series in 2 Samuel. And where we find these words of the living and true God. 2 Samuel chapter 4 beginning in verse one. When Ishbosheth, Saul's son, heard that Abner had died at Hebron, his courage failed and all Israel was dismayed. Now Saul's son had two men who were captains of raiding bands. The name of the one was Banna and the name of the other recap Sons of Remen, a man of Benjamin from Beeroth, for Beeroth also is counted part of Benjamin. The Berathites fled to Getaim and have been sojourners there to this day. Jonathan, the son of Saul, had a son who was crippled in his feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel, and his nurse took him up and fled. And as she fled in her haste, he fell and became lame, and his name was Methibosheth. Now the sons of Remen, the Berithite, Rechab and Banna, set out, and about the heat of the day they came to the house of Ishbosheth, as he was taking his noonday rest. And they came into the midst of the house as if to get wheat, and they stabbed him in the stomach. Then Recab and Banna, his brother, escaped. When they came into the house, as he lay on his bed in his bedroom, they struck him and put him to death and beheaded him. They took his head and went by the way of the Arabah all night, and brought the head of Ishbosheth to David at Hebron. And they said to the king, "Here is the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, your enemy, who sought your life. The Lord has avenged my Lord, the king this day on Saul and on his offspring. But David answered Rechab and Banna, his brother, the sons of Remon the Berethite, as the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life out of every adversity. When one told me, behold, Saul is dead and thought he was bringing good news, I seized him and killed him at Ziklag, which was the reward I gave him for his news. How much more? when wicked men have killed a righteous man in his own house on his bed, shall I not now require his blood at your hand and destroy you from the earth? And David commanded his young men, and they killed them and cut off their hands and feet and hanged them beside the pool at Hebron. But they took the head of Ishbosheth and buried it in the tomb of Abner at Hebron. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Let's look to our God once again in prayer. Our loving Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for this portion of your holy word. And we pray now for the help of your Holy Spirit who caused these words to be written for our learning. That through these written words, we may see the incarnate word, that we might meet with Jesus, our Savior and King, and receive his grace that changes our lives, equipping us to show his grace to others, that they might know his emancipating, healing love in their lives. Through Christ we pray, amen. Well, as we've seen in our series in 2 Samuel, the authors of 1 and 2 Samuel, in other words, Samuel and his successor, we know that Samuel didn't write the parts about Samuel's death and, and what happened, happened after that. So Samuel, who's understood historically by Orthodox Christians and Orthodox Jews to be the writer of, of a good portion of 1 Samuel, Samuel and his successor or successors went to great lengths to show that David, son of Jesse, was the rightful king of Israel. That's one of the great points that the writers of First and Second Samuel are seeking to make is that David was the rightful king of Israel. There were other claimants to the throne, but David is the one whom God had anointed, Set apart, blessed, repeatedly delivered, and prospered as Israel's rightful king. God ordained and set apart an anointed king. Moreover, the authors detailed how David himself wanted to evidence that reality by keeping his hands clean in his ascent to the throne. He kept his hands clean in his ascent to the throne and he wanted the nation to know and the nations to know that he had kept his hands clean in his ascent to the throne. He had many opportunities to, to kill King Saul, his, who had made himself David's enemy and who was constantly tracking him down, seeking his life. He had opportunities to kill David right there, or to kill Saul right there on the spot, and end all of the the, uh, the chasing and all of all of the fleeing that David had to undergo and, and take the throne for himself right then and there. But David did not. He did not reach out his hand to touch the Lord's anointed. Such was his fear, his filial reverence for the Lord. And his respect for King Saul, who was also, uh, at at least for a certain season, David's father-in-law, so he has this respect, and he repeatedly said, "Saul, I never had any animosity to you. I was, I've never made myself your enemy. Why are you doing these things?" So David kept his hands clean when it came to King Saul, and he went to great lengths to demonstrate his innocence in the deaths of Saul. And Jonathan, as we read about again tonight. So, here in 2 Samuel chapter 4, the author emphasizes David's innocence in the death of Ishbosheth, Saul's son, whom Israel, minus the clan of Judah, was following as king after the death of Saul. So, pretty much all of Israel except. For David's tribe, the tribe of Judah, was following after Ishbosheth at this time. But things were starting to crumble. Uh, Saul's house was weakening, David's house was being strengthened. Um, but this is David's desire, the author's desire here, to show David's innocence in the death of these men who stood between him. And the throne. So let's consider the narrative of chapter 4 and how it applies to our Savior and our life in Him under two headings this evening. First, Ishbosheth's murder. And second, David's response. And it was quite a response, just as his response had been to the uh, report of Saul's death. But first, Ishbosheth's murder. As we read in the opening words of chapter 3 a couple of weeks ago, after the death of Saul, there was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David, and David grew stronger and stronger, while the house of Saul became weaker and weaker. And we read of how Abner, Saul's cousin, and the commander of his forces had been accused by Ishbosheth, Saul's son and the acting king of Israel, of having a sexual relationship with Saul's concubine Rizpah. And that was taboo. That was, I mean, having a concubine should have been taboo. But this was in this culture, in this setting, that was really taboo to go after the king, even though he's now dead, but to go after uh, his concubine. And and. We're not told exactly whether it was a baseless claim, but given Abner's response, it seems to have been a baseless claim. Ishmasheth was no doubt jealous of Abner and his military success. As we said a couple of weeks ago, Abner was sort of like the league MVP, but he was on the worst team in the league, right? Abner is a brilliant, skillful, brave military uh, leader. And Ishbosheth was getting jealous of him. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? Just as Saul, his father, had become jealous of David and all the attention that David was getting for his military success. So Ishbosheth levels this accusation against Abner, no doubt to uh, smear his name and bring. Him down. But of course, in making this accusation, Ishbosheth was shooting himself in the foot. Abner, his best military uh, leader, responded ultimately to Ishbosheth's accusation by changing his allegiance to David. And David, as we read, received Abner upon one condition I'll receive you. I will treat you well as one of my military uh, leaders under one condition. You've got to go and recover, reclaim Michael, my wife, Saul's daughter and my wife. Remember Saul's daughter, whom Saul had given to David and then taken away when, in order to try to manipulate David all the more. So Abner did go and get Michael, to the dismay of her present husband. He wasn't all that thrilled with the arrangement. But nonetheless, uh, he went and got Michael and took her to David. Ishbosheth, again, Saul's son, so Michael's brother, right? Ishbosheth was no doubt further incensed that Michael was now back in the arms of David, his enemy. Abner, meanwhile, began his campaign to rally all of Israel in support of David as king. So it's like, you remember, if you went to you know, public school or whatever, you remember the pep rallies, right? The pep rallies. So that's what that's what Abner went out to do. He went out to rally the troops around the team. In other words, Team David, the House of David. We're going to get behind Maybe. So it's kind of like a political campaign. He's, he's going out to try to win over the tribes of Israel. Judah already firmly behind David, but he's trying to win over the other tribes of Israel to give David their full support. But his campaign on David's behalf was short-lived when Joab, okay, more, more family dynamics here. Joab, who was David's nephew, and commander of his army, does he want Abner to be the new commander? Does he want the MVP of the league to come in now and be on his team? No, jealousy gets the better of him and and there's another reason too. But he learns uh, that David has has welcomed Abner into into his confidence and into his um, cabinet as it were. And found favor and military appointment from David. Remember that Abner had killed Joab's brother, Asahel, in a previous battle. So Joab and his army tracked down Abner. Joab and his brother, Abishai, killed Abner as revenge, and again, no doubt to protect Joab's position as commander. Of David's army, so that's the very uh, you know I, as I said a couple of weeks ago, you know, is this Jerry Springer, all this kind of stuff going on with the concubines and the recapturing a wife here, and cousins killing each other and betraying each other, and all these kinds of things. So that that brings us to where we are uh, here in chapter four, Ishbosheth hears of Abner's death and his courage failed as we read in verse 1 of chapter 4 the death of his cousin and former commander of his army at the hands of Joab David's military leader was yet more writing on the wall that the house of Saul that the days of the house of Saul were numbered and indeed they were Two captains of his raiding bands, you see this is how people are turning on Ishbosheth. Two captains of his raiding bands, brothers named Banna and Rechab, could also read the writing on the wall that the power was shifting from Saul to David. But before telling the story of what they did, the author of 2 Samuel mentions Mephibosheth. It's kind of an interruption in the flow of the narrative in one sense, but he he mentions Mephibosheth, Jonathan's son, who will come up later in 2 Samuel as one to whom David shows the loyalty and mercy uh, that he had promised Jonathan that he would show his, his descendants. The author may have mentioned Mephibosheth here, to explain why there was not an attempt to make him king after the death of Ish-bosheth. The, the reason being that he was still a child. Mephibosheth is still young at this point, and because of his uh, debilitating condition, he had, been, he had been crippled. But after mentioning Mephibosheth, the author focuses on the murder of Ish-bosheth. Ish-bosheth. by the way, means something like man of shame. Man of shame. And Mephibosheth means breathing out or blowing away shame. So Recab and Banna, these captains of Ishbosheth's raiding bands. Rechab and, and Banna went to the house of the man of shame. I mean, we say Ishbosheth, but every time they said his name, they were saying man of shame. I mean that, that that's what it meant. So they went to the house of the man of shame at noonday while the man of shame was taking his nap. And they stabbed him in the stomach. They beheaded him and fled through the night by the way of the Arabah. Arabah just means desert, but this was part of the Jordan Valley north of the Dead Sea. And they brought the head of Ishbosheth to David, thinking that they would get a great reward. Well, they got a reward. As David alluded to, but it wasn't what they were expecting. They were expecting what men who have done this kind of thing for centuries, you know, since the fall of man, would have expected a key military appointment, financial reward, choice pieces of land, maybe a daughter of. David, or one of his relatives, those kinds of things. But these men should have known better. And that's our second point David's response to what these men had done. David reminded them of his response to the man who claimed to have killed Saul at Ziklag. What he did with that man was a very public thing. They should have been well aware of it. He reminded them that he had ordered that man's execution. David told the man in verse 16 of chapter one, your blood be on your head for your own mouth has testified against you. Your own mouth has testified against you saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. So Banna and Rechab were foolish to think that David's response to them murdering Ishmasheth would be any different. David said in verse 11, how much more when wicked men have killed a righteous man, in other words, a man innocently minding his own business in his own house, on his own bed, he's not harming anybody at that time. How much more when wicked men have killed a righteous man Shall I not now require his blood at your hand and destroy you from the earth? So David had them executed, killed, with their hands and feet cut off to show that their deeds had been evil. And he had them hanged to show that they were cursed and to put them on display as an example of what would happen to such Murderers, But it was also to display, this goes back to our original point, of what David is seeking to show, what the authors of 1 and 2 Samuel are seeking to show. It was also to display for all Israel that David was innocent regarding this matter. Just as he had been innocent in the death of Saul. And again, we should note, That was the author's intent in sharing this chapter and and what David did in response to what these men, these raiders of Saul's army had done. To show, the author wants to show, that David was innocent of the blood of these assassins and thus his ascent to the throne of Israel was a righteous one. He was righteous in his dealings with those who stood between him and the throne. He trusted God to fulfill his promises and promote him in due time. As David again testified in verse 9, it was the Lord who had redeemed his life out of every adversity. I didn't need you men to go do this. The Lord is on my side. The Lord will redeem me. The Lord will make me. It plain, the Lord will fulfill His promises to me in His way and in His time, and so we don't need the blood of Ishbosheth on our hands. So, the author of Second Samuel went to great lengths, as I've gone to great lengths to show you. He went to great lengths. He went to great lengths to show David's righteousness and trust in his god in terms of david's ascent to the throne of israel he showed the author was showing this in order to demonstrate that david was israel's rightful king and the same can be said for the writers of the new testament concerning jesus our savior and King David's greater son. Our New Testament reading from First Peter chapter two, beginning in verse twenty-two, that Austin read earlier for us, includes included just one example of this. Peter, who knew Jesus well, I mean, he spent three years basically nonstop with Jesus, watching him in every imaginable situation. Watching him endure slander. Watching people make accusations and innuendo about how he came to be in the first place. In other words, talking about Jesus' mother and her character. He watched Jesus endure injustice. The greatest travesty of justice ever. Ever. And mockery and abuse and crucifixion. After watching Jesus go through all these things and and, and just the the normal affairs of everyday life. Peter later wrote, he committed no sin. Now, would someone who spent three years of your life with you say that about you? I know they wouldn't say that about me. I mean, I've got some witnesses there in the back and other, but... Peter, I mean, Peter's honestly writing here, right? The, the gospels, for example, the Gospel of Mark. Who, who's the source of the Gospel of Mark, traditionally understood by Christians to be Peter? Well, the Gospel of Mark shows Peter's foibles, right? His failures, his sins. We see in the gospels that deny, Peter denies Christ, and Jesus having said, "Get behind me, Satan!" and all the rest. So Peter's honest. He's an honest man here in 1 Peter and through Mark. He's very honest. I'm not sinless. But this man, Jesus, with whom I spent three years, he never sinned. He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. Peter said, through it all, Jesus never sinned. Verse 23, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. In that way, David was foreshadowing in his ascent to the throne. He's foreshadowing Christ's ascent to the throne of heaven. Thus, Jesus is the truly righteous and rightful king and Messiah, anointed one of Israel. And as the only perfectly sinless one, he was able to do something about our sins. He was able to go as the Lamb of God and atone, For all our sins. David's sins, your sins, and my sins. Verse 24, Jesus, he himself bore our sins. See, Peter's lumping himself right in there with you and me. He bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, forgiven, healed of self righteousness, of bitterness, of jealousy, and all the rest. Verse 25, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. That's Davidic language as well. In Second Samuel chapter five, you just look at the head of the next chapter, 2 Samuel chapter 5 and verse 2, it says the Lord said to David, You shall be shepherd of my people, and you shall be prince or ruler over Israel so the writers of 1st and 2nd Samuel went to great lengths to show that this was true for David this this righteous ascent to the throne was true for David in a limited and temporal way the writers of the New Testament went to great lengths to testify and demonstrate that this was true for Jesus in a complete and eternal way. You think of Psalm 24, and that's a Psalm, that's a, that is a Psalm of David, but it points forward to the ascension of Jesus as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. In that Psalm, David asked... Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? Well, Christ is now in the holiest place. He is in the truly holy place in the presence of the Father, having made sacrifice for our sins. He, who can do this? Who can make this ascension? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. He who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. And then how are we to respond to this one who is now seated at the Father's right hands? Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory, this truly glorious, divine, human, king, This one who is truly sinless, that the king of glory may ascend, that he may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. So in response to the overwhelming evidence of the New Testament that Jesus is this king who made his ascent to the throne with clean hands and who rather than shedding blood to take the crown, went and shed his own blood. Rather than shedding the blood of others to take a throne as kings throughout history have done, this king shed his own blood in order to save us and be our savior king forever. In response to the overwhelming evidence Of his righteousness and his grace and his love, let us bow to him, love him, adore him, and follow him as our Savior, King. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.